Welcome to the Family Law Now podcast. I'm Russell Alexander. We've got a special guest with us today, Jason Kwiatkowski. Thank you for joining us, Jason. Thank you, Russ. Pleasure to be here. We're taking a look at business valuators in divorce. Jason is a chartered business valuator with over 20 years experience. He acts as a financial neutral. He's been called as a specialist and testified as an expert witness in the Superior Court of Justice. He has collaborative training level one and two as of 2012. He does business valuation for property and equalization purposes and income assessments for support purposes. So welcome. Last time we met, we were in Chicago. Yes, we were. You got your son uh, a baseball jersey. How did he like it? He liked the hat and shirt. Yeah. yeah. It was so good. It went it over fit, well. Did it fit? A little bit big, but when they're growing, that's important, right? Okay. Yeah. And what, which uh, team did you get? Chicago. We were in Chicago. I got the Cubs. They have two teams there. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> so the Cubs. So it was a success. It was good. It All worked right. out. So great stuff. Let's, dig, let's take a deep dive and talk about 10 things we should know. So first of all, Jason, uh, are all accountants business valuators? Absolutely not. Some people, some people don't know much about business valuation and chartered business valuators. Right. And some people think that any accountant can do business valuation. Right. But that's not true. Many what? accountants don't have the specialized training and the credentials to do business valuation. It's a very specialized area. So what's the difference? What kind of specialized training do you have then? Just a, a regular CA, for example. Exactly. I am a chartered accountant myself. Right. But in order to become a chartered business evaluator, you need additional training. Okay. So you have to enroll with the Canadian Institute of Chartered Business Evaluators. That's our professional governing body okay. in Canada. And you have to take a series of courses. There are six courses that are offered technical training on the valuation material right and you have to pass a final exam after those six courses and you have to take some uh, practical work experience as well you need 1500 hours of practical work experience in the area of business valuation it's like becoming an airplane flight well you need so many <laughs> hours before you can fly same concept yes okay. yes okay. yes yes all right, now there's the professional standards that uh, you adhere to. What are these standards? Absolutely. Our governing body requires that we follow the professional standards. There are professional standards that dictate our ethics and just a code of behavior, but there's also professional standards that dictate how we do our work and our work product. We have professional standards that we have to meet with the scope of work that we do, the scope of review that we do, the file documentation, all of these things. Okay. If anyone's interested in learning about the professional standards of a chartered business evaluator, look up CICBV on the internet and look up their website. Okay, so for our listeners uh, who may own a small business, when would they need to call upon you to do evaluation? What would be uh, the necessity that would bring you into the picture? That's a good question because it's not only a matrimonial separation that requires at times a business valuation. There are different triggers. Business owners will call, will call upon me to provide them with some valuation assistance when they're looking to perhaps buy another business or sell their own business. Right. They may be looking at doing some planning, some tax planning, some estate planning some pre-sale planning. They may want to sell down the road, but they want to get their business ready for sale. Sure. Do, um, is it required for their financing sometimes as well? Yes, yes. Sometimes you're looking to buy a business, um, you need some financing, you need evaluation. Excellent. Yes. And in terms of um, buyers, what, do, how do you assist in terms of transactions or share values or business value? Bias, what role do you play? Primarily when there's a transaction, either buying a company, selling a company, buying out a partner or shareholder, I will assist on the valuation side of things. I will assist by either advising them on what value or price they should expect to receive in a sale, or I will come in as an independent consultant to try to manage their expectations on 
on sale. I imagine most small business owners think the business is worth a lot more than it might actually be on paper. Managing expectations is a, is a big part and some business owners really think that their business is worth a significant amount because of all the time, the blood, sweat and right. tears they put into the business. Right. When in reality, it is just, it's not there. It's not transferable. There's no one out there willing to pay as much as they think. So they need a reality check sometimes. And a lot of it, I guess, is goodwill. And if that person sells, he could be, he or she could be the business, depending on what kind of service they're providing. You're exactly right. Some of these small businesses, particularly service oriented, that may only have the owner working there or right. the owner and one or two other people, a lot of that business is tied up in the owner. That's right. And that value is just not transferable. So yeah. we call that personal goodwill and, and no one's willing to buy that. So. Right, exactly. Lawyers go through that too, yes. um, a lot. So in terms of tax, estate and succession planning, what are we looking at? What, what can you bring to the table for business owners? I work with business owners and their accountants and lawyers in they're working on plans to transition the business to the next generation. Right. Right. They are trying to Make crystallize it. a tax liability now and defer tax related to the future value of the business to the next generation. Or make it tax efficient for the family in terms yes. of planning and how much you're going to need to pay CRA. Absolutely, because right. it's all about tax minimization or tax deferral. Right. And if you can do a corporate reorganization or a tax planning structure that accomplishes that, a lot of times this involves related companies and transferring shares or assets to a related company. And anytime you have a transfer of, of a business or shares to a related company, the CRA requires that that transaction happen at fair market value. Right. That's where the valuators get involved. And that's where you can really affect the tax consequence. Yes. Of the transaction. Yes. We're there as a safeguard in case they get audited down the road by the CRA. The CRA is satisfied that they had an independent evaluator come in. Here's the report. Here's the step we, steps we took. This is our, uh, we papered it all and the account, the CRA auditors can take a look at it. That's right. Right. So if, I, if I'm a small business owner, I'm thinking of selling maybe one, two, three years down the road. What kind of pre-sale planning can you assist the business owner with? A lot of what I do is valuing a business that identifies the risks associated with the business, identify the strengths and weaknesses. And if you can, if you can work with a valuator three years before you want to sell the business, you'll be able to identify a number of weaknesses or deficiencies or potential opportunities to increase value in the business before you sell. That's can where you, I come Can in. you give us a couple of examples of that? Sure. Like the one we talked about, the business is very dependent on the owner because the right. owner is involved in every aspect of the business. That is very risky to someone that's looking to buy the business because when they buy the business and take over the business, if that owner is no longer involved, right. maybe the customers go away and maybe the revenue goes so away. It's not like a franchise where you have a brand and a system in place. The owner is the system, the right. individual. Exactly. So we can identify that issue and concern and alert the business owner so that he or she can work to put a structure and infrastructure in place, policies, procedures in place, have other people take over some of the relationships with the clients and customers. Right. So it's easier to transition. Now, we, we've seen examples where businesses sometimes collapse or go into crisis because shareholders can't agree uh, and there's a shareholder dispute. Are you able to help small businesses with respect to those issues? We can, and a lot of it is preemptive. Right. So how do you do that? So ideally, the shareholders will have a shareholders agreement, although I recognize that a lot of shareholders do not have that. But that's the starting point. Um, a business relationship is almost like a marriage right? and it can break down at some point and people can, can decide they want to go their separate ways. And the question is, how are they going to do that? They may disagree on where they want to take this business. And one may say, I want, out. I need you to buy me out of this business. We don't see eye to eye anymore. Well, the next logical question is how much do you get paid for your shares? What is the value of the business? Right. And if 
the owners or shareholders disagree on that value. One thinks the value is very high, the other thinks the value is very low. That's going to cause a dispute that could lead to litigation. That, that's a great analogy because we're, we're talking about here today is divorce and business valuators. So saying shareholders are sort of like a married couple, that's a, a really good tie-in to uh, divorcing couples where there's a family-owned business or a business involved. We've worked together on collaborative cases and we've talked about collaborative family law at various conferences. So in terms of uh, working with a business valuator such as yourself, in a collaborative setting, you, you come into the room as a financial neutral. That's so right. what does that mean when you say, I'm a financial neutral? Being a financial neutral means that you are completely independent. You're an independent third party. You are not working for one side or the other. You're completely independent and you're going to conduct your review and analysis and provide your conclusions in an unbiased way. Right. So just take a hypothetical example. Husband's running a small car dealership. Wife's got nothing to do with it. You come into the room. You're not working for the husband. You're not working for the wife. You're just there to provide the collaborative team with a neutral picture. That's right. We're working for the team. We're working for both parties equally. Right. We're coming in. It's our job to gather information from both parties. It's our job to understand the level of sophistication and knowledge that both parties have in the business. And it's our job to understand the concerns and issues of both parties. So in this hypothetical example, the wife may not have any knowledge of the business, may think Correct. there's lots of cash, lots of personal expenses going through the, Correct. the business. So your job is to listen to her story and address those concerns. Yes, absolutely. And so how do you do that? Can you give us an example of how you'd work with the wife to address issues of, you know, under the table cash transactions, personal expenses going through the business? You know, the wife probably thinks husband makes a lot more than what he's declaring to CRA. How do you address yes. those worries and concerns? Yeah, so first, and those are two of the very most common issues that, that we face. The first thing we do is, is we ask the non-business owner spouse, right. what their level of knowledge is with respect to the business. How much are they involved? If they're not involved at all, how much do they understand the business being used as a source of funds for the family? Right. In terms of, are any family expenditures being put through the business? Are any family meals, dinners out, being put through the business? Is Which is anything? common. It is for, very common. Uh, a lot of small businesses. This is sort of the golden goose providing for the family. Yes. So we're not saying it's right or wrong. We're just now this part, this couple separating. We need to understand uh, what's available to each spouse. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So we want to we want to probe a little bit on those issues. Are there other family members being paid by the business? We have to consider that. Is this a business or an industry that deals a lot with customers on a cash basis? You know, there could be contractors out there, landscapers out there, any small service business that deals in cash, barbershop, right. beauty shop. Sure. Unreported cash income is oftentimes a source that is in addition to what's being reported. Yeah, right? exactly. So, so we want to identify potential issues by asking questions and we want to talk to both of them and make sure that everyone understands, especially in this collaborative environment, that we need to be open and honest with each other and get everything. It's full disclosure. It's full transparency. It's if you want to get through this, we need to be open and honest. So just to put, give you a bit of a curveball here to use our baseball analogy, oftentimes, unfortunately, there's very little trust between yes. the uh, spouses when they're going through a divorce. There could be an infidelity or something, violent, domestic violence. There could be a number of reasons why this the spouses, <clears throat> excuse me, no longer trust each other. And that really makes sometimes your job harder because everything one spouse says, the other spouse is going to be suspect. So how do you address the issue? I know we bring in fan, family neutrals to help yes. with communication and the emotions of the divorce. But as a evaluator, how do you help that person uh, who's distrustful uh, accept your data and your recommendations. Yes, that is very common and that does happen. Um, 
How we deal with that is we say for these issues with personal expenses, with related party wages, we are going to investigate by looking at the books and records. We are going to look at the company's financial statements. We're going to look at the expenses that are being put through the business. We are going to bring a critical eye ourselves based on the knowledge of the right. business that do these expenses look like they're business in nature or are there some expenses entertainment, vehicles, where personal expenses could be hidden. Golf memberships. Golf memberships. Dinner, all sorts of things. Right. You can imagine, you know, the, the, the yacht or whatever boat they're using. Mm -hmm. um, you and I have seen everything under right. the sun before, but we're going to identify those potential risk areas and we're going to ask for the detailed records of the business to right. scan through the general ledger. We want to look through all of the entries to highlight and identify suspect ones. And if you go through and you go through the ledger, and you tell the, the spouse who's suspect or doesn't believe anything. And you can say, okay, I've looked through these records. These particular items, whatever they are, have a personal element to them. So we're going to add that back into husband or wife's income for purposes of looking at support. Yes. And then you Both gross that up business? as well. Yes. Right? Yes. So that way, this person who is distrusting now has a feels that their voice is being heard. Yes. Yes, right. and, and a lot of it is education because sometimes the non-business owner spouse suspects that things are happening or knows that the business is paying these expenses, but really what the business owner is doing is recording those expenditures as a loan. Right. They're being booked to the shareholder loan account and then that is being cleared out at the end of the year by declaring a wage or dividend. That's right. So that is, is completely acceptable. That is not having the business pay expenditures for the family. It's not hitting the income statement. So, so we need to explain, explain that situation. That is a common business practice and accounting practice that these expenses go through that way. Yes, and that they haven't been reduced. They haven't reduced the business's income to the benefit of the owner. Right. That's now, what I really find in terms of the service that you bring to the table, Jason, is when we're in a collaborative setting and we're looking at small businesses or family-run businesses and you bring in your analysis as a neutral, automatically it has credibility. You know, if the one lawyer had prepared the report or had their own expert and the other spouse had her own expert, then we'd be in a situation potentially where we have dueling experts. Yes. But since you don't have a dog in the fight, you're, you've got a lot more credibility as a neutral. Yes. Yes, exactly. All right. So you come into the collaborative room. We have a number of options in terms of how you can deliver your report yes. to the clients. We can look at an oral report. We can look at a written report. We can just do a big picture overview. What are some of the yes. options? and also some of the costs associated with each, because I suspect a written report oh, yeah. is going to require more work, uh, more effort, more hours on your part. Exactly. So there are some options, and that's the great thing about uh, using a chartered business evaluator as a financial neutral is the options. If, if the parties want to have the process documented in a report, there are even options within the report. There are different levels of business valuation that we can provide. There's a calculation at the low level, right? a comprehensive at the high level, and an estimate in the middle. So a calculation is a very... And the costs are all different. The costs low are different. Low level is low level cost, yes. high level is more expensive. Yes, exactly. Okay. Sorry, go ahead, I cut right. you off there. No, so the calculation is we're saying we're coming in, we're relying on a few key documents like financial statements, tax returns, cash flow projections for the business, but we're going to rely a lot on our discussions with the management team and the family to identify the issues that affect value and assess risk facing the business to come up with our conclusion. Right. In a comprehensive, we don't accept everything that's told to us. We want independent verification. So we get the supporting documents, we do the research. Let's to, take a look at the invoice from that supplier to confirm it's correct. To corroborate all of the underlying assumptions. Right. That can be very time consuming and very costly. So that isn't practical a lot of the times. So many times we'll do the mid-road one, the estimate level, where there's a little more assurance because we're doing a little digging and a little independent corroboration, but we're not completely going to town and blowing the budget. 
Right. So there are different levels of reports. And limited scope reports or issue-specific reports, what's that? Yeah, limited scope reports, there are different types. There's what is referred to as a limited critique report in our profession, where this you won't see very often in a collaborative setting, but in a traditional matrimonial separation or other litigation, one side may have already retained a CBV expert and that expert may have already retained or prepared a business valuation report. Well, then the other side may ask me to come in to review that other expert report. What were the assumptions? What was the data that was being looked at? Yes. How, do, can, how can we attack it potentially? Yes. Do I see any issues or concerns with their methodology, with their assumptions, with their scope of work? And I'm going to highlight my issues and concerns in a report, but I'm not right. going to provide my own conclusion. Right. It will alert them as to whether or not the other side's expert report is reasonable or if there are issues. Exactly. Now, in terms of, um, let's just talk, just to make a big distinction here. When you're attending a collaborative meeting to report to a group yes. conducting a collaborative divorce, what is your role and who pays you? My role is as an independent neutral. I'm typically being paid by both parties equally. Right. Although practically it may be one party and then that gets evened up. Gets adjusted later. in the final gets settlement. Gets adjusted in the final. Right. And my role in the meetings is, is to present my findings. I'm presenting the process that I went through. I'm, I'm basically explaining to both parties, to all parties in the team meeting, what it was I did who I spoke with, what information I gathered, what valuation approach I used and why, what assumptions I made and why, and what my conclusions are. Now, if the family's in court and litigating and it's gonna to go to trial, at that point I assume you're only gonna work with one spouse. Yes, that's correct. So whether it's the husband or the wife, that's gonna be your client. Yes. And you provide that person with a report. Yes. Even in those situations, I am always retained as an independent expert. Right. I'm, my job is there to be independent and ultimately to assist the court or the trier of fact. I was just going to say that. You also have yes. a duty to the court because yes. you may be called upon to give evidence. Yes, exactly. Right. Yes. So it's not as if you're coming up with a report which is the best number for your client. You're still going through the same steps and the same methods that you would in a uh, collaborative uh, process. Absolutely. If I'm doing my job correctly as an independent expert, I should come up with the same conclusion if I'm jointly retained or if I'm only retained by one party. Right. And I think we touched upon this a little bit, but there's something called a big picture review. Yes. What are we looking at if you're just doing a big picture review for yes. couples going through a divorce? Yes. So sometimes there's not a lot of resources and funds available to pay experts and lawyers. Right. and and sometimes there's not a, a huge business. There's a small family business, right. and the owner and operator of that business thinks that there's really no value to the business, but the non-business owner spouse has just known that this business is provided for our family and thinks that there's a lot of value there. Right. So the non-business owner spouse will ask us to take a look at the business, take a look at what it does, what it earns, who it has, operating the business and get back to them with our comments as to whether or not we think that there likely is some real intangible value here that someone would be willing to pay for in the marketplace. Sure. Or alternatively, get back to them and say, you know, actually, you know what? This is a situation where no one's going to buy this business. Your spouse just simply has employed himself and has a job. Sure. It's not built a saleable business. That's a high-level review. We're not... So you have a $20,000 business, which could be a repair truck full of tools. You're not going to spend $15,000 on a business valuation. Exactly. If but you you'll provide a big picture to say, it doesn't look like this is worth um, doing a deep dive. Right. And we'll say why. We'll explain why. Right. And chances are, if you've got a business that has annual sales of under $100,000, you are going to be in that situation. Sure. Which is common for a lot of small businesses. It is. Right? It is. All right. So we've got the business side. Um, 
we've discussed that. In terms of helping, a net family property statement is a document that lawyers prepare. Uh, and it takes all the assets, all the debts. We look at the date of marriage. We look at the date of separation. There's deductions for items brought into the marriage. So there could be exclusions for personal injury awards or an inheritance. Uh, so we put this on a on a graph or a chart that we call a net family property statement. And it helps us understand how much family property there is. If somebody has more, they may need to pay their spouse some money and that's what the lawyers would call an equalization cal calculation and payment. So what's your role with respect to businesses and helping counsel and couples going through a divorce, assessing the value of the business for purposes of what we call net family property. Yes. I need to get involved whenever there are business interests or a business involved. Right. And what I do is come up with the value of the business because that is a key input to that net family property statement that you mentioned. The net family property statement is a statement of the assets that you own at the date of marriage, at the date of separation. And we need to put values in for those assets at those dates. So I'll be asked to conduct my analysis and review to come up with the value for the business mm -hmm. that is an input to that NFP statement. Right. There are other, other considerations though that you need to be aware of. And that is if there are any shareholder loans that are included in the value of the shares of the business, those shareholder loans need to be parsed out and put into it's another asset that the individual has, or it's another liability that the individual has on right. top of the value of the shares. On top of that, if we've come up with a value for the shares of this business, let's say we said that this business is worth a million dollars. So now, let's say it's the husband that owns the shares of the business. He owns shares in a business that's worth a million dollars. That million dollars goes into the NFP statement as an asset, but he's allowed a deduction for the future taxes that he'll have to pay on an eventual disposition or windup of that business. Notional disposition Notional costs. Notional disposition the, right. costs. And we, and we take care of that aspect as well. So there's a lot of unknown knowns. So what I'm, what I'm trying to explain here is if you're going through a divorce, there's a lot of things about a business that could really affect the value of the net family property statement and how much each spouse gets. Absolutely. So let's just use a few examples here, Jason. A uh, couple gets married, one spouse brings a business into the relationship. Yes. So now we have a date of marriage deduction yes. for that business. They stay married for 20 years, same business, but the value has changed. Yes. How do we treat that? You need to do another valuation of that business at the separation date. Right and the value at that date goes into the NFP statement at the date of separation. And you need a value for the date of marriage you as well. You need a value at the date of marriage as well, yes, so absolutely. So on day one of the marriage, the business may have been worth a million dollars. Yes. 20 years later, the business may now be have grown and they've acquired assets and increased their customer base. Yes. And the business is now worth $5 million. Sure, so that's right. So in simple terms, we take the one from the five Yes. And we have a $4 million asset as of the date of separation. A $4 million asset, ah, sure, sure. That, that's that's the, the difference. That's, that's the, the number growth. we're yes. using for the net family property statement. Yes. Because the business owner would get a credit for the asset they brought into the relationship. Yes, that's correct. Which would be different than what the asset could be on the date of separation. Yes, absolutely. Now, there's also things such as retained earnings, um, how do we treat that when you're doing your business valuation? Does that go into the final number? Retained earnings is part of the entire value of the business. So when we come up with a final conclusion of value, it includes that retained earnings amount. So for the public, what is a retained earning? Retained earnings is a tricky term because people, people don't fully understand it um, that are not familiar with reading financial statements of businesses. But essentially, retained earnings is a company has a balance sheet that sets out all of the assets that it owns, things like cash and accounts receivable and inventories and capital assets. 
It also sets out all of the liabilities that it owes to its suppliers, accounts payable. It may have income taxes payable. It may have bank loans with the debt, all of the liabilities. The retained earnings is part of shareholders' equity, which is the net of the assets less the liabilities of a business at a particular point in time. And it's called retained earnings because it's an accumulation of all the years of income or losses that the business has accumulated and retained in the business. So if you're a spouse going through the, a divorce, and if you don't know about retained earnings, this could have a big impact on any final agreement that you make. Yes. And that's where we'd bring in an expert like you to say, here's what my analysis is with that respect to that specific issue. Yes. And we're there as educators as well. If you, right. if you don't understand retained earnings and how it fits into the valuation, we're there to explain And that. lots of lawyers don't understand that. Yeah. You know, yeah. we know that we don't know and that's why we bring somebody like you into the picture. Yeah. Now what about capital gains? That could also really affect the business. Okay, capital gains. Capital gains result when you sell an asset for more than you bought it for. Right. So that could be a consequence in terms of valuing a business if there's a capital gains that's going to be realized. Yes. So the person who keeps the business has a tax liability associated with it. Yes, that's right. That's so how, right. How do we deal how do we talk how do we look at that when we're going helping couples going through a divorce? So associated with the value of the business, and remember, when we say what is the value of the business, we are assuming notionally that this is how much the business would sell for in the marketplace. This may be a dumb question. Can a capital gain be either a plus or a minus? You, you could have a capital loss in theory if right. you acquired a property for $100 and only sold it later for $50. Well, or a business for a million and sold it for a hundred thousand. If you bought a business, but generally what, what we deal with in these situations where right. we're valuing businesses is that the business owner, when they start up the business, they put a hundred dollars share capital into the business. That's their cost base to start up the business. And if many years later, the business has grown to a million dollars in value, then the capital gain associated with that is 1 million less the hundred dollars that they started, the share capital that they started the business with. Right. So it's a huge capital gain. But that's important because there's a tax consequence to that. Exactly, exactly. So that 990,000, exactly. is subject to tax. It's subject to tax now with- But at a different rate. Yes, it's at a different rate. It's, and, and it really depends on the type of business as well. Because if you're looking at selling shares, of a particular business, we call it qualified small business corporation, the government has allowed everyone a capital gains exemption. That used to be amount. up to 800,000, I think, right? Yes, yes. But I think they're starting to scale that back a bit. I'm not sure, because okay. they change it every year, and I always right. have to check with my accountant okay. in the office, because I'm a business valuator, right. not a tax accountant, but So for, yes. the, for the public, what yes. do we need, or for spouses who don't have a CA or a business valuation degree. What should they be mindful when they're thinking about tax capital gains with respect to small businesses or bus any business? They should, they should really be aware that it is out there and they should be aware that many business owners try to utilize that capital gains because it just makes sense in terms of effective tax planning right. and tax minimization. Right. And, and, and if you, can do whatever you need to do to meet the criteria to utilize that capital gain and shield taxes, then that can reduce the eventual tax liability. Which would increase the amount of property that's available to share. Yes, that's right. Those are all great tips, Jason. Thank you so much. So we've looked at the small businesses or businesses generally in terms of their value for people going through a divorce and trying to calculate how they're going to share property or what the lawyers call an equalization calculation. Right. You also bring to the table the ability to do income assessments. Now that's yes. different than a business valuation. What's the yes. difference between a business valuation for, with respect to understanding what the property value of the business yes. is and an income assessment? They're completely different because the business valuation is providing a value of a piece of property that goes into the net family property statement 
the income assessment is we are looking at the business owner's income that is available for support purposes. So it deals with support issues, child and spousal support. Child and spousal support is based on an individual's level of income. Right. And generally, uh, we would ordinarily look at line 150 of the your, your tax return. Yes. And your notice of assessment with Canada Revenue Agency. Yes. And base support on that. Now, the support could be child support, could be spousal support, it could be a blended uh, combination of both. Yes. What's the difference between a dividend and a salary? Dividend and salary is a different form of payment from your business. So, are they taxed differently? They are taxed differently. So, everyone does file their own personal tax return right. and everyone puts in their different sources of income. If you get employment income from your employer or business, that goes on one line in the tax return. If you have your business pay a dividend to yourself, that's a different source of income that goes in on a different line of the tax right. return. And we've talked about this already, but in terms of personal expenses paid by the business, how do you treat those in your income assessments? Yeah, see, just to take a step back, the reason we need to get involved when there's a business owner is that income for support purposes, as calculated in accordance with the federal child support guidelines, right. is really a gross employment income concept. So they want to put everyone on the same even playing field. It's a gross employment income equivalent. So right. it's very easy if you're an employer, you take your line 150 income and right. that's your income. But if you're a business owner, there are a lot of perks and benefits that you can run through the business that you benefit from personally, but it doesn't necessarily show up on your tax return. So we call this common adjustments for business owners. Yes, exactly. And we've talked a little bit about dividends because that comes through at a different tax rate. Yes. Uh, so how do we treat up personal expenses? I assume we're going to gross that up somehow? Yes. What does grossing up mean? Yeah, it's a difficult concept for some people to understand. So I'll just explain. A business owner has a business. They have the business pay for vehicle expenses for meals and entertainment, for other promotion that are personal. The business owner is realizing a personal benefit from those expenditures paid by the business. The golf trip. The golf trip. All the things yeah. that the, the owner gets the benefit from and the business does not need to incur for right. business purposes. Right. So the business owner, if he or she did not have that business, but need, wanted to spend that amount on those types of things, vehicles and golf expenditures, golf trips, how much would they have to earn, say, in employment income and be taxed at, as employment income to generate the same net benefit that they're receiving from the amount the business How many after-tax dollars are required? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So not only are they getting a benefit by the business gets the write-off and reduces its tax bill, but the owner is taking a benefit because they don't have to take their after-tax dollars and pay for these expenditures. It's almost so a double whammy. It's a double whammy. And right. there's a, in order to put them on the same level playing field as gross employment income, whatever amount the business paid for the owner's personal expense, if it was $100, well, the owner probably would have to generate $200 of gross income in order to net the $100 to pay that benefit. So there's that gross up to put it on the equivalent level. And we've seen this over, over the period of a year, we could be looking at 50 or $100,000 that we're be. adding back into income. Exactly. So you've got your base income of 100,000. We've got this extra 50 we're gonna gross up. So now you're at 150 for purposes of calculating support. Yes. yes. All right, how about um, this idea of related party wages uh, and grossing that up? What are we talking about here? Yeah, here, it was very common and a few years ago, but I think the government is sort of cracking down right. on this now. But the idea or concept here is that what a lot of business owners were doing was paying family members, spouse, children, an income, an employment income from the business, having the business pay to the family members instead of themselves at lower tax rates. Sometimes the girlfriend or the new boyfriend. Oh, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So 
The purpose of doing that is to minimize the overall family's income tax exposure. Right. But, but now the family is separated. Now the family's separated. The spouses now, are going their own way. Right. So what do we do about these wages? So looking historically, you're going to, you're going to attribute or add back those wages that were paid to the related parties. And you're going to consider them having been earned by the business owner. So the potential support pair. Yes. That person's income is going to go up. Yes. If they're the ones owning this business. Yes. Right. Yes. And not only that, they're going to get a gross up, uh, a gross up penalty because if they had taken that income into their own tax return, they would have paid a higher marginal tax rate than right. family members. Right. So they're going to get a gross up on, on top So this of that. is pretty complicated stuff. It's not something a lay person can do on the back right. of a napkin. We're looking at people in two different tax brackets. We're looking at grossing up certain items. There's a lot of there's a lot that goes into this. Absolutely. Right. Great stuff. Thanks, Jason. So let's talk about unreported cash sales. Sure. Another hot button. Yes. We've talked a little bit about it in terms of the business valuation side. Now let's consider that for purposes of income and support. Yes. What do we do about the cash? This is the most difficult issue to investigate and come to a conclusion on. Because if there's an allegation of unreported cash being earned, we need to investigate it. Right. And how are we going to investigate it? Well, and our, our case, the, the example I gave you is where the one spouse would give you a list of items. Yes. She knew during the course of the marriage that her husband was running through the car dealership. Yes. That's one way of doing it. Yep. Are there other ways to attack this problem? Well, if they really need us to investigate it because it could potentially be a significant issue, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll go through the bank statements. We'll go through the bank statements and identify all the deposits that have come into the bank. Right. And then we'll compare it to what's being reported in the business. And there may be a discrepancy there. We may have to investigate that discrepancy. Another way I suppose you can go about doing it is look at the expenses. Yes. That so was the next part. if yes. the one spouse is spending a hundred thousand, yes. declaring fifty thousand in income. Yes. Either they're taking on debt or they've got cash to cover that 50000 That's right. So we, we call that a lifestyle assessment. Right. And it's looking at all of the expenditures, like you, met, like you mentioned. It could be going through the bank statement and looking at all the checks and payments. could be going through the credit card statements and looking at all the payments. It's really coming up with what is the level of expenditures that this family is paying and does that jive with what income is being reported? Right. And we all hear these stories, right? You know... Person X is driving a $100,000 car, but is telling their spouse they're only making $25,000. Or they're, go you know, we hear the stories where they've been on three or four vacations in the last four or five months. Yeah. You know, how are they funding this lifestyle and reporting to the other spouse or the court that their income's $25,000? Exactly. Right. Yes, I've had many of those situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It uh, reminds me of a story where a judge told me um, he imputed income to a support pair and uh, the support pair was really upset about it. And then the, later on in the day, the judge looked out his window and the support pair drove off in a Ferrari. Yeah, <laughs> so he was, the judge was pretty comfortable yeah. that the correct decision was made. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, so let's take a look at attribution of pre-tax corporate income. Okay, good one. What are we looking at here? What should be, people be thinking about with respect to this idea concerning income and income analysis? Yeah, this is a very important issue, and this is an issue that is not well understood by people out there, right. especially business owners. Right. And, and what the idea here is that when you're a business owner running a business that generates an income and you're in control of that business, you could potentially have other sources of income available to you. And that's why an income assessment is an assessment of, of an individual's right. income available for support so, purposes. Let's stop right there. Uh, what I know that I, I hear this question in my head. I'm sure the people listening have the same question. What are these other sources? What could they be? It's, that, it's from the business. Can you give us an it's, example? It's the net income of the business. Okay. So the business has 
generated a net income of $200,000. Right. And the business owner has already paid himself a salary. So that's part of the expenses of the business. And then maybe the business owner paid himself a small dividend of 20,000. Right. But the, but the business generated net income of 200,000. So is this retained earnings we're getting it, into? It, it goes into the retained earnings, okay. right? But the question is, you look at a, at a particular year. We do an income assessment for each year. Right. So for the year that we're doing an income assessment for, let's say it's 2019, we're going to look at the year end of the business in 2019 and see what net income did the business generate in that year? If it generated net income of 200,000, and the business owner only distributed out 20,000 of a dividend, then there's potentially another $180,000 of income that's available to that business owner. So I get it. Now I think I get it. So you're saying a reasonable business owner might have drawn the 200,000 out. But this particular business owner might be going through a divorce. So that takes 20 instead of 200,000. But potentially that additional 180 should be available for support purposes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. A lot of people wouldn't even know to ask that question. No, no. It's a very important factor to consider. It's set out right in the guidelines right. for officers, directors, owners of a business that you have to assess because the court can impute some or all of that pre-tax income of the business yep. to the business owner. But it's not, it's not just an automatic adjustment to income because there may be legitimate reasons why the business owner has to keep funds in the business. So their lending arrangements with the bank might require them to keep a certain level of capital yes. to keep the credit facility going. Yes. That might be one reason. Exactly. Got it. They may not have enough cash on hand. They may have covenants associated with bank debt. They may have to reinvest in the business's capital assets. In order to keep the business that, going. That piece of equipment's failing. We're going to have right. to get a new right. wet, uh, widget maker or whatever right. the case may be. So that's, that's why a lot of times we'll look at, is there a historical pattern? Like you said, if historically the business owner has always been distributing sure. all of the income and then all of a sudden stops, well, year, that doesn't look very good. You're divorced. There's no more distribution. Right. right. There's a suspect. Right. Is it passing the smell test, I guess, yes. is what you're saying. Yes. All right. So great tips. What else should be, I guess, um, risk intolerance and uh, other contractual obligations are some of the things that would require them to keep the, the money, yes. money in the business. Yes, yes, yes. All right, really excellent tips, Jason. So let's take a look at some case studies. Um, just some hypotheticals, actually. We've talked about the small car dealership owner. Right. Right. What about um, businesses that uh, there's other stakeholders, other shareholders? How do you do evaluation or an income assessment when the person going through the divorce uh, has to answer to other, other third parties in the business? It can be challenging. Right. Particularly if the business owner in question is a minority shareholder doesn't have control of the business. Right. We still have to do our job in gathering information about the business to do evaluation. And sometimes the business owner will want, the spouse, business owner will want us to speak with a partner or another shareholder to gather and information. One example I can think of is um, a transaction may occur in the business after the date of separation which affects the value of the business after the date of separation. So let's just say the business is worth a million dollars, they get a new contract and all of a sudden the business is worth three million dollars. The spouse who's not part of the business may think that's fishy, that's suspect, that maybe they delayed that contract to have the other spouse avoid sharing that with the, um, as part of family property. Yeah. That's a, that's a good case study point there, yeah. So I guess what you would need to do is speak with uh, the other directors or the other shareholders, maybe take a look at the actual contract yeah. in terms of when was that negotiated and entered that's into right. yes. to satisfy 
the spouse that's going to go without that it's either a legitimate transaction or it's something that we need to add back in. Yes, we can look into that and talk to all the relevant parties and maybe look through some emails um, to satisfy really, the person in that situation. Really interesting stuff. And a lot of people wouldn't even know to ask these questions. Yeah, that's right. Unless they engaged somebody like you with this expertise. Yes. Uh, you and I have worked on other cases so we can have a meaningful discussion in terms of what are some of the issues people should think about. But if it's just a, you know, a regular couple going through a divorce with a business, a lot of these questions wouldn't even come up. Right. Excellent. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah, that's exactly right. Someone to get in there that, that knows what to look for. Right. And the business may be the exact same value that it was, uh, that you thought it was, and you're make, at least you're making an informed decision. Or the business could be worth two, three, four times more than uh, what you actually thought was or what was put into the financial statement. Yep, that's right. Along with the income too. Yes. Right? $100,000 is a, a good income for a lot of people, but that income could easily be three or 400000 depending on what the business is doing with um, its capital and its earnings. Absolutely. And, and more times than not, when I'm doing an income assessment for a business owner, the business owner's income available for support purposes is higher than what was reported in the tax return. Right. Yeah. Which is, which is that doesn't mean the business owner is doing anything mischievous. It's just no. good tax planning that's, and it's an efficient right. way to draw out the funds from the business at that time. That's right. That's why it's so common. Right. But now you're going through a divorce, you're separated, and we need to take a different look at the income. That's right. We need to see what the real income is from all exactly. sources. Great stuff. So Jason, this discussion has been incredibly informative. I'm sure our listeners are going to benefit a lot from this. Uh, a couple more quick questions. How do people go about finding a business valuator or somebody to do an income set, uh, assessment? Yeah, what I find is Typically, they will talk to their accountant or their lawyer, ask people. If, if you don't have an accountant or lawyer that knows a business evaluator, you can do a Google search. But they should include certain designations, right? Yes. You want to make sure you find, find someone with a chartered business evaluator designation. Right. Don't just use your company accountant. Got it. Great stuff. Any final tips for our listeners today, Jason? I don't think so. I think we covered off most, mostly everything. Excellent. Well, thank you for being here today. We really appreciate you sharing your time. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. If you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, please share it with your friends and families and colleagues and look forward to our next podcast, which is coming out soon.